Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletaub from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Orange, California is Professor Mark Meyer. Uh, Professor Meyer is the founding chair of the leadership program at Chapman University. And today we're going to be talking about ethical lessons learned from the Columbia and Challenger disasters. Uh, Professor Meyer was really good enough to give us a really comprehensive look at that for the January issue of Ethicos, the quarterly on business ethics, and really happy to have him here with us. Uh, first, Professor Meyer, thank you for taking the time to talk to us and for contributing so much to the magazine. Oh, it's a real pleasure, and thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. And it's a fascinating topic. You know, I read through the very long piece that you did, and one of the things I found interesting was that position has an enormous impact on how we communicate. Uh, specifically, you brought out that people are very uncomfortable speaking truth to power. Um, is this, do you think, a fundamental human problem? And if so, how do we overcome it? Um, yes, it, I do believe this is a fundamental human problem. And overcoming it requires looking at it from both sides of the dynamic involved. Um, speaking truth to power implies that we're the ones having to speak up, literally speak up, uh, as an upward to our authorities and supervisors. And there's an inherent a personal risk associated with that, especially when you have uh, what you know might be annoying or inconvenient news to share with people above you. But the other side of that equation, which is even more important and which is why it makes it so difficult to speak truth to power is that those in power usually send signals that they want things to go their way. They want to keep things on track. They want to meet their schedule. They want to stay on budget. And so they often, sometimes unwittingly, but sometimes very deliberately, create a climate where it, it is very difficult for people who have bad news to confront them. You have the proverbial the emperor has no clothes syndrome. So if, if people with power operated with a different mindset, um, then people would feel less, less risk in bringing um, uh, difficult uh, news or inconvenient truths, quote unquote, to their attention. So that's, uh, you know, it's bo both sides. You, people who are in power need to create the climate where people can feel free to communicate, uh, not just good news, obviously, but bad news in a system. The only bad news is the news that you don't hear about because you can't do anything to correct it. Um, and the other side of the equation is people have to have the courage to step forward and bring that news to those who have the decision-making authority to do something about it. It's definitely two sides of a coin. I mean, you need the right environment, but all of us need to overcome that sort of human tendency not to want to share bad news with people. Now, in both the Challenger and the Columbia disasters, you point out that a known risk was the cause, but nothing had happened for so long that there was risk complacency. Similar things can happen all the time with more prosaic, less life-threatening risks, you know, business factors um, that business faces. How can an organization protect against risk complacency? Well, um, one of my favorite sayings um, uh, from W. Edwards Deming is there's no organizational transformation without personal transformation. So when you talk about um, organizational risk complacency, I think one of the issues that's involved there is dis 
distinguishing between external and objective risk and internal or subjective risk. And um, I do believe that on Challenger and Columbia, and often in our daily lives, our, we tend to downplay the external risks because we're actually perhaps unconsciously more focused on our own internal uh, sense of comfort and well-being. And so it's easier in the short run to avoid the risk. So actually Challenger and Columbia, um, you know, as you're suggesting, were the results of organizations falling into risk complacency and taking uh, excessive risks with the lives of the astronauts. But in fact, the decision makers were avoiding risk. They were avoiding the more fundamental and immediate risk to themselves of um, stopping the shuttle program to fix these known problems. Um, and in the and and in the situation where they were able to get away with it, flight after flight, um, um, they mistakenly presumed that the risk wasn't so high because they were getting away with it. But that's what Richard Feynman, the Caltech physicist, Nobel winning uh, physicist, who sat on the presidential commission referred to as playing Russian roulette um, with the shuttle. So, um, um, so you know, how, how do you pr protect against it? Well, number one, you don't compromise your fundamental criteria on both Challenger and Columbia. There were explicit criteria before um, uh, the shuttles were ever ever started to fly that no foam could shed off the external fuel tank because they knew that that could be a uh, danger to the very fragile um, uh, carbon tiles on the underbelly of the shuttle shuttle. Um, and on the, the O-rings, there was uh, these fragile O-rings, they're barely a quarter of an inch thick, biton rubber. And the hot gases from inside these rocket boosters burn at 5,600 degrees Fahrenheit. It doesn't take long for heat of that magnitude to vaporize a fragile seal if, if heat gets to them. And when heat first got to them, when some of this hot gas first got to the O-rings um, uh, in the early flights of the shuttle program, the mistaken calculation was, oh, well, it worked. So therefore we can tolerate you know, some degree of hot gas impingement on these fragile O-ring seals. Well, it didn't work. The criteria that you set up front stipulated, our criteria for not working means hot gas reaches these O-rings. And they switched the criteria basically, um, in effect, I mean, see if you can if you can follow this logic. Um, in effect, they switched the criteria to it's not working when we blow it up, then we'll know. Wow. Well, and too often in business, again, it's less dr drastic, but it's still the thing is, well, we shouldn't have been doing this, but we've gotten away with it so long. Maybe it's not really something we need to worry about anymore. Correct. Now, we saw in both of the cases of Challenger Columbia, people made what they called business decisions. The business goal took precedence over the safety need, and in both cases, it proved disastrous and catastrophic. How can we encourage managers to understand the risks of a so-called purely business decision? Um, well, for one thing, I think implicit in your question is a it's a it's a demonstration of the mindset that many business managers find themselves in, which is there is such a, uh, there is a distinction to be made between a business decision or business results 
and safety concerns. And there is no such thing as a quote unquote purely business decision. Um, I think that is sometimes the rationale that is trotted out like, oh, well, we had no choice, economics dictated, blah, blah, blah. Um, but if you're following that logic, then you could also exculpate the, uh, all of the coaches in USA Swimming and USA Gymnastics for abusing our female Olympians for so long, just saying, well, all that mattered was getting results and getting gold medals, um, so we're going to look the other way, as we did you know, in, in those two instances. Um, so, um, uh, and of course, in the end, when the miscalculation eventually adds up, because the further along you go, the bigger the problem gets. You know, the saying that a stitch in time saves nine. If you're, if you're not willing to stand up when things are small, then you've conditioned yourself, your ethical muscle reflex, if you will, to blink when the situation's big. And of course, blinking when they're small allows it to fester into a growing problem. And uh, coming back to this point I made earlier about the subjective internal calculus versus the external objective calculus, in our own minds, we might have this idea that we can uh, um, avoid risk to ourselves by going along and passing it along and, and uh, you know, just progressing on the path that we're on, thinking uh, or inoculating ourselves that, well, it's just, it's a business decision, economics, really dictates that we move in this direction. And really what we've done is we've substituted the, the it's a classic sociological terms because the means ends dysfunction that Max Weber talked about, you know, over a hundred years ago, this idea that we now, we no longer are addressing the means that lead to the ends, but we're letting the ends, our goal or objective determine the means. And, um, and, it's just when you say business result, it's just like in math. A result is always at the end of the equation. There are pieces that, that go into creating that result. And if you're focusing on the result, it's like as uh, Ken Blanchard once famously declared, it's like playing tennis with your eye on the scoreboard. You have to pay attention to the game itself. Um, and there is no substitute, um, you know, as I learned uh, obviously from Roger Beaujolais and Alan McDonald uh, on the challenger scenario, um, there's no substitute for doing the right thing. It, it, it's, it's hard to do the right thing, especially if you don't feel like you have organizational support for it. Um, but in the end, these ended up being terrible business, business decisions because the shuttle program was grounded for over, you know, for two and a half years um, because of the, uh, uh, the miscalculation and the unwillingness of the Thiokol managers to take the real risk to themselves, i.e. to stand up to NASA and stand firm um, in support of their original decision not to launch, because that was the decision that they had made and they had rendered and they had announced to NASA, do not go tomorrow, it is going to be too cold. That's our best technical recommendation. Um, and uh, NASA challenged that and, and forced them basically to retract and reverse themselves. And so the managers were unwilling to take the risk of upsetting their major customer and threaten a billion dollar contract that NASA had already announced just one week prior to the Challenger launch that they were seeking a second source on. So their, their exclusive contract with the space agency was, uh, was under threat. Wow. It's amazing what we do in the face of money and then also this whole idea that business decisions are absent morality. I, I have to say, I often wonder how much the movie The Godfather had uh, an impact on that, with that whole 
thing, but it's nothing personal. It's just business, uh, yeah. allowing people to do horrible things. Yeah. Now, you're an advocate for servant leadership. It's a term we hear a lot. What does that mean, and how can it encourage more legally compliant and ethical behavior? You know, that's a that's a great question. I guess I have to start off by saying that servant leadership isn't a style of leadership. I think that part of the confusion comes from the 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 name itself. When you when you hear servant leadership in your mind, you're instantly comparing it with things like autocratic leadership or democratic leadership or laissez-faire leadership or authoritarian leadership, et cetera, et cetera. So we mistakenly assume that the the servant in servant leadership is the adjective that modifies that that's defining the type of leadership that we're talking about. So, um, uh, but that servant leadership is not a style of leadership, it's a stance. And if we back up for a moment, I, I, you know, and just imagine, if you ask anybody, who would you rather work with? Someone who's out to serve themselves or out to serve the team or the organization or serve others? Everybody, I've asked this question, I've said, well, I'd rather work with someone who's out to serve the team or out to serve, you know, uh, the, or the organization or out to serve their community. Uh, who would you rather have working for you if you're a supervisor? Someone who's out to serve themselves or out to serve others? Again, that's a no-brainer. I'd rather have people who are looking to support, you know, the, the the team. And who would you rather work for? What kind of boss would you want to have? Someone who's out to serve themselves or out to serve the interests, the you know, long-term, especially of the organization, or community, et cetera. And all of us would rather work for someone who's out to serve us rather than just serve themselves. And um, so uh, that immediately uh, contrasts servant leadership with the, the type of leadership that we that is most common, which is the power model of leadership. And I make that distinction uh, in the article. It's very fundamental that mo most of the leaders uh, that were involved in the challenge or launch decisions operated from a power stance. Um, that allowed them to exclude or ignore or, um, or or suppress information from people beneath them in order to please people above them. So um, uh, the, the, the servant leadership model, it derives from Bob Greenleaf's um, writing. He was a former AT&T director um, who retired early at age 60 to start uh, the Center for Applied Ethics, which was later renamed in, in his honor, you know, before he passed away in, in uh, 1990. Um, um, at the age of 86, but uh, his, he wrote about it. He, he said, the servant leader is servant first. It begins with a natural feeling that one wants to serve and serve first, and then conscious choice brings one to aspire to lead. So he takes these two seemingly oppositional frameworks, servant and leader, and blends them together like an alloy like steel. Steel isn't a naturally occurring element. It occurs from blending, chemically bonding other materials into a much stronger composite. And so Greenleaf saw this the same way. This, this ideal to serve, which he believed was endemic to most people, fusing that with leadership, the capacity to engage, to take initiative, uh, to bring others together in common cause, bring those two together and you have something that's more powerful than just being a servant, um, to others and just being a leader, which is more positional. So, um, so that's a maybe. Hopefully, that's a, a an easy way to grasp what servant leadership is, but more importantly, what it what it is not. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, you, it's a great job you did, and uh, I think it's one of those terms that does confuse people. Now, finally, you write, and I'm quoting, the failure or refusal of a leader to foresee may be seen as an ethical failure, end quote. Now, that sounds like a departure from what traditionally has been the definition of ethics, or is it? Well, it sounds like a departure, and if we take that analogy of a uh, you're, you're traveling on a train and, you, and the train's departing from a station. Um, um, before the train got to your station, it's, it was at another station before that. So I, this, I, this the idea that the failure or refusal of a leader to foresee is an ethical failure, that's actually one of the things that Bob Greenleaf wrote about in his uh, or original essay, The Servant as Leader. And he acknowledged that that's a pretty high standard um, uh, but his his point was that ethical failures that seem ethical uh, unethical in the moment usually have their origins at an earlier point in time when the leader had the the opportunity to do something about it. That was that's the stitch in time analogy I used before. When there was an opportunity and the freedom to act, and you fail to act, you look the other way. As I mentioned before, that conditions you then to blink when it's when the problem gets big. But of course, you know, ironically, um, when is it easiest to face a problem when it's small, but only objectively? Because objectively, it's easier to fix when it's small. When is it easiest to confront a problem? Is actually, in from an internal perspective and a political perspective only when it gets big because then people say oh my gosh we have to do something about it or they recognize it too late and after the fact and this is the deferred maintenance failures like the uh, south uh, the collapse of the champlain tower south uh, in uh, in the miami area last year uh, just deferred maintenance you know you can put it off you know for a day for a week maybe for a month maybe for a year but you keep doing it, you know, you're just, uh, again, you're just, you're rolling the dice. Um, and I think the other, the other thing, Adam, that I believe makes it difficult to confront these issues, uh, and this is why foresight is so important, is not that people can't foresee the likely consequences of a course of action. It's that they're unwilling to act on what they're seeing. Because, and this comes back to your original question, um, you know, about speaking truth to power. That's one of the reasons why they either fail to act um, or uh, why the decision makers don't create the climate that suggests we're not just, you know, we're not just all enamored with goal fever here, um, trying to, we're not just focused on the goal, we're focused on the steps we need to take to reach the goal um, uh, successfully and safely. Um, so, um, yeah, it's a, it is, it's a high standard, but I don't see it as a departure. I see it as, it's an earlier stop on the journey to not just, not just have the foresight, but to act, actually act on that foresight. Um, and, uh, you know, you, uh, you hire people as your experts, um, you know, uh, Al McDonald and Roger Beaujolais both used to emphasize in the workshops we would conduct together, um, you know, you hire us for expertise, you better listen to us when we give it to you. Don't just accept our expertise when you agree with it, you know, especially when we when you disagree with it, that's when you really need to be paying attention. Well, I, I hate to say it, but I think uh, you illuminated one other concept here, which is uh, it's 
difficult to speak truth to power, but it's also difficult to speak truth to ourselves at times. And when we see an unpleasant truth and something in the distance, we often or too often cower from it and it ends up ending very, very badly. Well, Professor Meyer, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us today and in the upcoming issue of Ethicos. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletaub from SCCE and ACCA. I hope we are able to expand your compliance perspective.